from Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 12 to 17. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. People often ask me, what was it that caused you to be such a passionate atheist once upon a time? And I've got many reasons why that was the case. But the main reason why I was such a passionate atheist was because I caught wind of the fact that religious people thought that I could not be a good person unless I believed in God in the first place. You know, as far as I was concerned, I don't need to believe in God to love my neighbour. You just go about and do it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? funny thing was that over the years, my moral code just drifted and drifted. You know, there were things that I would never actually do that I thought was wrong until I did. But it was okay because whatever I did didn't matter so long as nobody got hurt, which would never hurt anyone until I did that too. But it was okay so long as they didn't know about it because you can't get upset about what you don't know right? It's kind of like that mind twister of a tree falling in the forest. If no one's there to hear it make a sound, did it really make a sound? So if no one knows that you've wronged them, have you really wronged them? Over the last two weeks, we have seen that the first half of the Ten Commandments calls us to love our God. And this morning, we see that the second half is about loving our neighbour as ourselves. This structures a society. And it shapes the way that we see others and ourselves. The commandments really seem like basic common sense to us these days, don't they? See, but when Moses first read out the commandments to Israel at Mount Sinai, they were revolutionary. The world that they lived in was a brutal place where every nation and every person was out for themselves to get what was theirs. Society was organised around the belief that some people were simply just born better than other people. And there was absolutely no value in being vulnerable. So when Moses read out the commandments to Israel, It was like they were hearing regulations that would shape this new nation that they were a part of, shape them to be a nation of humility and weakness. While being surrounded by nations who had no issue sacrificing their own children if it meant that the God that they worshipped would bless them with a banger crop that year. The commandments called Israel to be righteous among the wicked. The commandments are also a reflection of who God is, a loving God who is holy and just. The commandments are also a give to organise his people under him in a way that would reflect his goodness to the other wicked nations. Kind of like how well-behaved children seem to indicate that their parents must be getting a little something right. My late grandmother would always say to me as I was growing up, you know, good manners 
show that you come from a good home. Israel was chosen to become a priestly nation, a nation that was holy, set apart. And to do that, their focus had to be different to all the other nations. Unlike the nations who crushed their neighbours, Israel was to love their neighbours. And this moral code of humility and love spread out with the growth of Christianity, which is why we simply just take it for granted today. John Dixon, a historian and theologian, writes that the social impact of this ancient moral charter is so great that most people living in the West, even in my post-Christian Australia, are living by the Ten Commandments, pretty much. The Australian society that we live in just simply assumes our Judeo-Christian moral foundation. Because, and, but you know what they say about assumptions? They make an ass out of you and me. Because we just assume that we just live by this moral code that has always been in the background, we just don't give it much thought to where it came from. It just is. So we doubt how necessary this code really is. We're kind of like that young male that reaches a certain point that asks the question, do I really need to constantly wash my sheets regularly for my bed all the time? I mean, what's the worst that can happen if I don't? Without a moral anchor, we are simply drifting out to sea. We know the commandments, but they're in no way instilled in our hearts. And they are seem to be these days as helpful as any other wisdom that we come across. Just one among many. And as time has passed, we have lost track from, of where we have come from and we do not know where the winds are taking us. We just assume that we are progressing forward, getting, becoming a better society with each and every future generation. But with no anchor and no clue, we aren't moving forward at all. We are on a course backwards, back in time to before Christianity and the commandments that structured it, that revolutionised the moral landscape. And that's a terrifying thought. In the first century, the Roman Empire was large and in charge, and they had moral ethics and encouraged all kinds of sexual relations that were fluid in gender and in age. Marriage was valued, but not, but it wasn't, but monogamy was not valued at all. A person's value was based on their breeding, gender, youthfulness. Children were viewed as being a liability particularly girls, because of their vulnerability. The problem of too many mouths to feed was commonly solved by leaving babies out to be exposed or be aborted. This wasn't, of course, considered murder back then. This was simply a rejection from society. We look back at the first century and we are shocked by its brutality. It's complete disregard for human life while not seeing the irony that's in our own modern Australian culture, where all sexual relationships and all kinds are encouraged and monogamy and marriage has just become passe. Where human value is based on consciousness, vulnerability and how likely someone is to have a quality life. 
The abortion debate since the lifting of Roe v. Wade has brought to the surface some very extreme views. There are some pro-choice groups that argue for abortion all the way up till birth because the baby is so reliant on the mother for its sustenance and life that if a mother decides not to offer consent for the baby to use its body any, her body anymore, well, that is perfectly acceptable grounds, apparently, for an abortion. Darker still, Steven Pinker, a cognitive psychologist and popular science author, actually argues that killing newborn infants should not be penalised as harshly as killing older children, because evolutionary psychology suggests that babies aren't actually real people, because they don't have the mental ability to know who they are, or even if they're alive or dead. This is terrifying. But it's not just the young whose value is dismissed, it's the elderly and the vulnerable too. The measure of human value in Australia today is quality of life. If your age, physical or mental limitations prevent you from quality of life, then euthanasia is becoming a much more acceptable solution, a way of freeing yourself from a life that potentially will be without quality. Sorry, it's now called assisted dying. But this is wrong. Human value is not based on age, breeding, gender, or cognitive or physical ability. It is not the result of how you were born. It rests firmly and undeniably on the one true God who does not change and neither does the value that he's placed on each and every one of us. That is why it is wrong to murder, to steal, and lie because it denies the reality of humanity that we are all made in the image of God above the rest of creation charged with having dominion over it the second half of the commandment structures a society under God on that principle our modern Western culture lives by one commandment these days Thou shalt consent. Now, consent is a good thing, but it does not have the power to structure a society around by itself. Consent can only point to personal permission, not personal value. God's law reveals to us how far we have drifted and how low we have come to, va to value our, uh, each other. And that is something that we should feel the grief of. We should anguish over what our society has become. In 2 Kings 22, the law was found after many years of being forgotten and lost. And when it was brought to, brought to the king and read to him, he saw how much he and his forefathers had failed God. He saw how ignorant Israel had been because of it. And he understood the judgment that was rightly coming to them because of it. And in anguish, he tears his robes. The law reveals our sin, which is a gift of grace from God. It's a chance to turn to him and repent, to warn us that we are unknowingly walking off a cliff. The king and Israel repents after the law was read out for the first time after so long. We have drifted. But it's not too late. 
And it starts with each and every one of us here, because after all, a society is made up of a group of individuals. So back when I was an atheist, I legitimately thought that I had not wronged anyone until they knew about it. Because after all, it doesn't matter what we do, so long as nobody gets hurt, and you can't get hurt by what somebody doesn't know. This is another common mantra that is in our culture today. But it denies the value of each other, and it makes light of the desires of our heart. When we sin against each other, we take value from the other. And what is taken must be paid back. It doesn't simply disappear. After all, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. It is from the evil desires of our hearts. Exodus 21, so just after the commandments, moves from the broad commandments that are in the 10 and to be more if-then laws. For example, verse 14, if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. In all verses 18 to 19, if people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. See, this shows that when we sin against each other, we take value from each other. In our selfishness, rage and anxiety, we can't help but think ourselves more important than other people. It's a lot like this one time that my family and I were going up an escalator, going down an escalator, and a woman decides it's completely acceptable to barge past us as she's running late for her nail appointment. In this moment, she saw herself and her needs more important than the safety of my family. Because of our undeniable God-given value, we were wronged. When we wrong someone, it's a debt is created. And you can see it as clear as day in Exodus 21, 23 to 25. If there is serious injury, you are to take a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, and bruise for a bruise. But this also applies to ourselves as well. The choices we make, the desires that we act on, can cause us to devalue ourselves. Even if we do something that doesn't hurt anyone else, we still hurt ourselves. Our world encourages indulging in the sexual, the material, and puffing ourselves up and empowering our own selves. While in the background, depression and anxiety numbers are escalating dramatically. Because instead of treating ourselves as the image of God that we are, we dehumanise ourselves and act like instinct-driven animals in a world that is based on survival of the fittest. We are living in opposition to who we are and our purpose as we follow the desires of our sinful heart. The commandments are a gift to transform our hearts 
to learn to live as God has called us to live, to treat each other with the same value that God has given each and every one of us. Which is why Jesus highlights when he, re- highlights when he reinstates the commandments in the Sermon of the Mount. He takes the commandments and explains how each one begins first in our hearts. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, meaning hate, if is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it is said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's just take a minute and just let that sink in. The moral code for Christianity is so high that although we have may never murdered anyone, that if we hate somebody, we have already murdered them in our hearts. We may, not, may not, never have actually cheated on our spouses, but a longing look that lingers means that we've already cheated on them in our own hearts. Do you feel the gravity of this? You should. Because I am very confident that each and every one of us has murdered and committed adultery in our hearts many times throughout our lives. And I bet you we didn't even notice that we did it. But that's a gift of this commandment, because now we know. And because we know, we have a chance to return to God, turn back to Him and repent. Who through his son has made it possible for us to be redeemed and transformed to be like him. The perfect image of God who fulfilled the law. So that those who put their trust in him are free from sin, reconciled to him. The debt our sin causes between us and God is paid for. And we are free to be as holy as our God is holy. But this is hard to do with hearts that are still filled with such evil desires. As James writes in his letter, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evils that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, which is my final point. The fifth commandment to honour your mother and father goes along with the seventh commandment not to commit adultery. It highlights the importance of the family unit. God uses parents to teach and raise their kids to love and know him, which means the family is actually a tool of sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. This becomes impossible if children do not respect their parents or if mum and dad are being unfaithful to each other. So seeing seeing as we all have parents, we need to see them with the honour that God has given them, which I know is easier said than done. This doesn't mean everything that they do is right. It doesn't mean that everything they say we must be obedient to. Instead, we are to maintain the attitude of holding our parents in the place that God has placed them in our lives. Now, parents... 
just because this honour is a fact doesn't mean that you don't need to be worthy of it. Parents have a huge and unique responsibility in raising children, which breaks down if mothers and fathers are divided against each other. And remember that it's only with a lingering look that you've committed adultery in your heart. So make every precaution for this not to happen. And if it already has, it needs to stop now. Because your responsibility to your family is far too important and you will be held to account. The family unit is so important that we, and it is, our world is trying to tear it apart so much, it doesn't need us to help us do it as well. We've already looked at murder deeply, but a way of avoiding the hate that grows in our hearts is to practice treating everyone with the same love, grace, patience and gratitude that God has treated us with. So we need to be reflective. We need to try our best to put ourselves in other people's shoes, see things through their eyes. And at the end of the day, we are all sinful. So be humble. Not stealing seems obvious, but we often steal in ways that we don't even think about because we just seem to want to put our needs above others. We justify downloading illegally, not doing the job that we have been hired for, rounding up quotes. We must remember that whatever we do actually costs. We create a cost when we wrong somebody else. And that cost needs to be paid. And far too often, when we steal, the cost that is left is paid by people less fortunate than we are. To lie is to simply treat someone as a fool. It's an insult to somebody else's intelligence. It's to create a false reality that is somehow apart from actual reality. <coughs> Social media. And no one benefits from lying. And it takes so much energy to maintain. And you just look foolish when you do eventually get caught out. Not to mention that if you're lying about something silly, what will people think about you when you, when you are talking about something that's very important? What will people think about you when you are sharing Jesus with people? Coveting, desiring what others have or achieved has always been a human heart problem. And let's be frank, social media has used that and monetized that. It has used the problem with our hearts and wanted to make money off the back of us. As we scroll and looking down at how other people seem to be so much better off, people that we knew once ago, we start to question our life choices. We get restless in the situations that we're in and we start making really bad decisions. We had to seek the kingdom of God, not the best life one person in high school has now. Just Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom of God after a really big section of explaining to us not to worry because our God knows what we need and will provide for us. It just probably won't look like what an Instagram influencer has. We have to practice an attitude of humility and gratitude, not the entitlement of the world that we live in. When we look at the second half of the Ten Commandments, it is clear as day that how we treat each other matters. Because the God who created all things has placed us in creation to be his image, to reflect his goodness to each other. And that's why Jesus is able to summarise both halves of the commandments so succinctly. The first is loving God. 
And the second is loving your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your law. The way that it reveals the sin that's within our heart. The way we see how far that we have swayed from you. How much we have drifted. Lord, help us to be strong when the winds of this, of this world try to draw us into it. Help us to see each other with the value that you have placed on us. Let us not live lives that devalue each other, but rather build each other up. And we pray that you help us be righteous people in a nation that seeks the wicked. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.